Let's pray before we get into the word. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this morning, Lord. Uh, Thank you for this time that we can come and worship you through song. Prepare our hearts now as we come to your word and your table, Lord. Uh, Give us just eyes to see uh, through your word this morning and and the truths you've got for us. Uh, Be with me in this this time. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. It was a hot, hot Kansas City afternoon. A little bit different than this beautiful May morning we've got going on here. It was a hot Kansas City summer afternoon. It was one of those afternoons that if you were to ask me, why did you move to Denver? I'd say humidity and heat like that. That's why. And I sat crouched in my catcher's gear, my mitt out, sweat pouring down my face into all of my gear. There is about 100 people behind me holding their breath for what may have been the final pitch of the game. But I sat there thinking, wow, how on earth did we get here? A few months before, I had gone to our very first practice. It was a new season, and this was a new team that was just being formed. The coach called us to the middle of the field, and I immediately knew this was the most mismatched group of people I had ever been around. You know, at home, you've got that, you've got your sock drawer, right, at home? Who's got a sock drawer, right? You've got a sock drawer, and then you've got a corner of that sock drawer where every sock that's mismatched, right, because your dryer ate the other one, and you've got that one sock, you just stick it in that corner. So you've got a pile of mismatched socks in the corner of your sock drawer. I know you've got it. I've got mine. Okay, that was this team. This team was the mismatched sock drawer of baseball, We had a country kid, a suburb kid, a Jewish kid, a handful of city kids. There was so much to divide this team. And then as we introduced ourselves and gave our positions, things were only looking worse. We didn't have a catcher. We didn't have a first baseman. We didn't have a left fielder. We had one pitcher. I don't know how much you know about baseball. It's kind of hard to win without four of the positions, right? And we only had 10 players on our team. The rest of the league had about 15 players on every team. So we knew that, hey, summer, people go out of town. We were going to be playing a lot of eight-man baseball versus nine-man teams. This was not looking good. At the end of the practice, the coach calls us back together. He's this big, gruff, tough guy, beard. You could barely ever find him without chewing on some old cigar takes the cigar out of his mouth long enough to declare the mission for our season. He says, boys, we're going to win us some baseball games. And I'm standing there thinking, no, we're not. (laughs) We're going to be doing good to win a baseball game. This is a disaster. But something unbelievable happened in the months to come. One by one, players raise their hand to switch positions, to make that sacrifice of learning something new. When people were out of town, we covered up for them and their their positions. Guys who had never walked the streets of the city or the suburbs suddenly found themselves eating meals with, spending time with families from the other side of the tracks. People who would never have picked each other out of a crowd to be friends with became good, tight close friends. All of those things that should have divided us, all of those things that usually divide us in society, they suddenly 
they just, they just melted away. Because we knew that we were in for a long, hot, miserable summer if we weren't unified. Have you ever been a part of a team or maybe a group at work where, wow, it's so talented. You've got all the parts and pieces. They're just right there. But they can't ever seem to win the big game, get that big project done on time, because they're not unified, right? Have you ever seen that, right? We all have. Or have you ever been a part of a team like this baseball team of mine where the parts aren't there, the talent isn't there, there's a few things missing, but for some reason, you're so unified that you can do anything. What if our church was so unified that we could do anything? Right now we're in the middle of a sermon series on this this little book called I Am a Church Member. And the second chapter is about this idea, this idea of unity. And so this morning, we're going to look at a few passages, and we're going to look at three truths, three truths about unity, three biblical truths about unity in our church. For the first one, we go to that passage that Daryl just read from John chapter 17. It's verses 20 to 23. Now, this is when Jesus, Jesus is just about to be arrested and crucified, And he's praying for his disciples. He's praying for us. And he says this, my prayer is not for them alone, meaning not just his first disciples that are in that room with him. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as as you are in me and I am in you. I have given them the glory that you have gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Jesus actually repeats a few ideas twice, just in these few verses here. His prayer is, look at verse 21, that we may be one. Verse 23, that we may be brought to complete unity. That we would be unified as a church. That we would be unified as a church here at South Suburban. And the foundation for unity is found in those same verses in 21 and 23. Jesus says there, where uh, where Jesus says to the Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. He comes back to it again in 23. It's kind of cryptic language, but he says, I in them and you in me. The unity of our church is supposed to be based on the unity between the, the Father and Son. The unity between God the Father and God the Son. There are three distinct persons of the Trinity. We talked about this a couple months ago, remember? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And they're not divided, they're unified. So the foundation of unity is actually the very nature of God. Worshiping God means not just something we do here on Sunday morning. Man, this has been an awesome time of worship, but it's not limited to this. It's all the ways in our lives that we reflect who God is. That's worship. And we cannot be both divisive then and a worshiper of a God whose very nature, whose very essence is unity. So if we seek to worship God, to reflect this God whose, whose nature is unity, we each have to be then a source of unity. Christians are supposed to live in such a way that the world would see us and say, that church, South Suburban, the unity between those people, that must be what God is like. 
God is one, so we must be one. But we know we're far, far too bra- broken in our relationships to base that sort of complete unity on our ability just to get along with one another. The great Christian writer A.W. Tozer has said, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. We find unity as a church by each pursuing Christ. And as we're tuned to him, As we're tuned to Christ, we will find unity as a church. This is why the foundation of unity must be the nature of God. And if the foundation of unity is the nature of God, then we can only be unified in this church if we share the same essential, most basic beliefs like who God is. So here's a few essential beliefs we have here at South Suburban. There is one God who is infinitely perfect, existing eternally in three persons. The Bible, Old and New Testaments, are the inspired and authoritative word of God. Jesus is both true God and true man. He died upon the cross for the sin of the world. The foundation of our unity here as a church is the nature of God. And if we can't agree on the essential beliefs like who God is, then we'll never find unity as a church. A few weeks before our, our first game, this new team, our, our coach brings out the uniforms. He opens up the boxes and he says, all right, our team name is going to be the Indians. We put the uniforms on. He gave us each a number. It's the nicest uniform. I was pretty proud of it. Nicest uniform I had ever worn. But what do you think would have happened if we had spent the next couple months arguing about our team name? No, I want to be the Tigers. I want to be the Pterodactyls. Or if we had been arguing about what sport we were there to play, our mission. Actually, I want to play football. I know it's a baseball team. I want to play football. Actually, I want to play badminton. I mean, can you imagine a team like that running out on the field? They've all got different names on their uniform. One guy's got a badminton racket in his hand. Another guy's got a football helmet on. Another guy's got a a mitt on the wrong hand. That's not a team. They're not going to win a whole lot of games, are they? We're the same as a church. We can't take the field together if we don't. The foundation of unity is the very nature of God. The second truth of unity is also found here in John chapter 17. Jesus has just prayed, right? He's just prayed that we would be one, that we would be unified with him and with one another. And then he tells us that that unity has a purpose. Unity is not the end. Unity has a purpose. And he says in verse 23 that if we find complete unity, here's the purpose, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So if you look at that verse, what's the purpose of unity? To know that the world will know that God sent Jesus and that God loves us. That's the purpose of unity. The purpose of unity is mission. One of our values here at South Suburban is to captivate South Denver and beyond with the good news of life and Jesus. We have to be unified to accomplish that mission. Jesus' words make it clear, the world is watching. The world is watching. 
and our unity can make a compelling case for salvation in Christ. Think about it. The world is really used to divisiveness, isn't it? Turn on the TV and listen to just two minutes of politics. The world is really, really used to things being divisive and divided. It's common. It's the norm in our country to sort, divide, exclude based on wealth, race, ideology, age, politics. So imagine, imagine with me just for a second. Imagine if the church could be a place where the world would look and see people of different ages, different ideologies, different, different politics, different races, different backgrounds, different economic classes come together in complete unity. If that were to happen, everyone would know that something supernatural is going on because it doesn't happen anywhere else on earth. Our church will only find unity when we share a common mission. And while divisiveness means that we'll never accomplish that mission, with unity we can do anything. The purpose of unity is mission. But here's the number one cause of divisiveness. Gossip. If the church is Superman, if the church is Superman, gossip is kryptonite. It destroys unity. Listen to what James 3.6 tells us about our words. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire. That's a pretty dramatic sentence, isn't it? It really is. James tells us that our words can be destructive. Remember those forest fires a few years ago? Remember those? Remember watching that on the news, seeing the smoke rolling? A forest fire starts with one small spark, doesn't it? But it can burn down thousands of acres of forest. Our words can create factions and fights that distract our church from its mission and destroy our church. So if you find yourself speaking poorly of someone, of sharing some negative information about a leader, of having a problem with someone and instead talking to someone else about it, you're starting a forest fire in our church. If you're about to tell someone something and that little light goes off in your mind that says, ding, this might be gossip. It probably is. If you hear someone else gossiping, gently rebuke them. Remind them that that's just not the type of church that we want to be. We need to become so fixated on God's mission that we're disgusted by gossip. Gossip destroys unity, and there's too much at stake because the purpose of unity is mission. For the third truth about unity, we're going to actually go to the book of Philippians. There Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So here's the third. This was a little hard. The third truth of unity is this. The enemy of unity is me. The enemy of unity is me. Look at what Paul says here. In verse 2, he says his hope is unity. That this church that he's writing to in Philippi would be one in spirit and of one mind. 
But then he tells them what the enemy is of that unity. What's going to destroy that unity? In verses 3 and 4, he says, My selfish ambition, my vain conceit, mine own interest. The enemy of unity is me. So often when we think about the biggest threats to the church, we think about them being out there, don't we? A government, a person, a group that's on the attack. We think about the threats to the church as being out there. But what Paul is saying is that the greatest threat to the unity of the church isn't out there. It's in here. It's in me. It's in you. It's in us. Because a fight for me is a fight against we. That's why the enemy of unity is me. And most often we find ourselves fighting for for me when it comes to our preferences. We've all got preferences when it comes to church, music styles, songs, volumes, instruments, order of worship, communion, building, ministry preferences. The list is endless. And there's hundreds of us in this church. And so there are hundreds of sets of preferences because God has crafted us in unique ways. And preferences aren't bad in themselves, but when preferences are fought for, they become toxic. When they're fought for instead of sacrifice, they become toxic. That's why the enemy of unity is me. Our second practice that baseball season, I'm taking grounders at my old familiar position of third base. Coach walks over, takes that cigar out of his mouth, says, Darvin, yes, coach, what would you think about moving to catcher? And my first instinct was, no, I'm pretty comfortable at third base. Catcher seems like an elaborately uncomfortable way to be hit by a baseball at 80 miles an hour several times over three hours every single day. No, I really don't want to move to catcher. But the problem was we didn't have a catcher. So I said yes. You know what, eventually, after I hit with the baseball enough, I started figuring it out and I began to actually enjoy playing catcher. I really had preferred to stay at third base. It was comfortable. I had played it for years. But I knew if I said no, I'd be hurting the team. The enemy of unity is me. We have a great, great lady here that's a member with us, and she goes to our 8 o'clock traditional worship service. And she's just, she's dying to see a few people in her family come to that that transforming relationship with Christ and really get plugged into this church. Her preference is the 8 o'clock traditional service. But what do you think she does when her family says they may show up to church and that they're going to come to the 930? You think she cares about her preferences anymore? No. No. She comes to 930 and she sings her heart out. Sings her heart out. Or 11 whenever they come. Because, hey, Who cares about preferences when souls are on the line, right? Just doesn't matter. Imagine if all of us had that attitude all of the time that that my preferences don't matter. They pale in comparison to God's mission. Because if we look back at Philippians 2, we're going to realize that some of our selfish ambitions, our own interests, our own conceits, some of the things that we prefer are some of the very things that are keeping the lost out of our church. I'll tell you this, personally, my preference is contemplative worship, right? My preference would be, if you're going to set it up for Darwin, just for, just for me, 
We'd come in here and we'd spend about an hour in the dark and just silent prayer. But I have a sneaky suspicion that it's going to be really hard to reach the lost in this church if we have them come in in the dark in an hour of silence prayer. So I know that it's not going to reflect my preference, right? I've got to sacrifice it. To see our church captivate South Denver and beyond with the good news of life in Jesus, we're all going to have to be open to sacrificing whatever preference we have. Because the enemy of unity is me. So our three truths this morning, our three biblical truths about unity in this church are one, the foundation of unity is the nature of God. Two, the purpose of unity is mission. And three, the enemy of unity is me. When you put these together, it confronts us with a question we've each got to ask ourselves this morning. Will I be a source of unity? Not somebody else. Will I be a source of unity? Last month, our board and our staff finalized a a group of six value statements for our church. Daryl introduced them to us last week during his sermon. That was a great time. And the last one was unity. It reads like this, as a unified body, we will put aside our own interest, resolve conflicts peacefully, and together champion the objectives of the church. This is something we value as a church. And so we've got to each ask ourselves, will I be a source of unity? Tom Rayner, somewhere in here, I'm forgetting which page, but he says this about unity. When you become a Christian, God expects you to be part of his church. But when you become a part of his church, he demands that you become a unifying presence there. And that's the question we've got to ask ourselves. Will I be a source of unity at South Suburban Christian Church? Will I put aside my own interests? Will I resolve conflicts peacefully? Will I share the essential beliefs of this congregation? Will I champion the objectives of our church? Will I work against gossip? Will I make God's mission my priority? Will I sacrifice my own preferences? Will I, will I be a source of unity? So uh, there I sat my catcher's gear. Sweat pouring down my face on that hot Kansas City summer afternoon. It was a playoff game. A game our ragtag group, it, it really had no business ever even playing in. Pitcher let the ball go. The batter swung. And I felt that ball hit the back of my mitt. We threw our gloves in the air and that mismatched sock drawer of a team ran together in the middle of the field to celebrate together. Man, it should not have worked. We didn't have the talent. We didn't have enough players. We didn't have the right positions. We didn't have the pieces. It shouldn't have worked. We shouldn't have won a single game, let alone making it into the playoffs. And to this day, the only explanation that I have is that one word. Unity. Unity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us the complete unity that you spoke of in John 17, Lord, that you would, you would make us one as a church so that we could accomplish just anything for the sake of your gospel. 
May you help each of us answer that, that question of will I seek, will I be a source of unity with a resounding yes and work for it every day, every week of our lives, Lord. May you give this church your unity, the unity that only comes from you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.